Well, as we turn back to Paul's letter to the Philippians this morning, we come back to that big central theme we saw last week, the theme of joy. And I'm prompted to ask us to reflect on what, what are the things that make us rejoice? Now, I'm well aware that I'm asking that question as a Northern Irishman, and I'm addressing a room full of Scottish Presbyterians. So we're not groups of people who are renowned for our ability to rejoice, but I'm sure that even in this room, between ourselves, we can probably think of one or two things that cause us to rejoice. Uh, I think of uh, moments in my own life. I used to think that the moment of purest joy in my life came back in uh, 2016 when I saw Northern Ireland play in the Euros, uh, when uh, the second goal went in against Ukraine. I thought in that moment, nothing will ever top this. Uh, You'll be happy to know, Judy especially, that my wedding day and Billy's birth have both since eclipsed even that day of great joy. And I'm sure that all of us will probably have had moments like that. Those moments when the guard goes down, when our hard Scottish exterior melts away, and we find ourselves swept up in sheer adulation and joy. And wonderfully, the Christian life is full of moments like that too. Full of things which just bring us to our knees before the Lord in heartfelt and joyous thanksgiving and praise. Maybe for some of us, that's the moment when our children have professed faith, when we've been praying for them for many, many years. Or maybe it's when we hear of a new mission work or a church opening in a place where there's not been much gospel witness before. Or maybe it's finding out that friends or loved ones have come through illness when that's looked really unlikely, when we've been praying for them for a long time and find out that they've got the all clear. Those are moments which fill us with deep joy and thanksgiving in the Lord. But I would guess as well that we tend to not rejoice. It doesn't tend to be our first reaction when we hear of street preachers who get arrested for sharing the gospel. Or when we ourselves are being disciplined at work or threatened with being fired just for being public and open about our faith. Or even more seriously, when we hear of brothers and sisters around the world who are facing real persecution, even the threat of death for knowing and loving Jesus and proclaiming his name. We might tend to not rejoice when we hear of things like that going on. But this is one of the great paradoxes that we find in the book of Philippians. If you were out with us last Sunday, you'll remember that Paul is writing this letter to encourage the Philippians. He wants them to be full of joy and rejoicing and to encourage them and to give thanks for them and to see them grow. But there's a slight fly in the ointment here, a potential snack. This, this letter that the church in Philippi is receiving from Paul, this letter from their great hero in the faith, a letter which is meant to fill them with joy and confidence in the Lord and boldness in proclaiming Jesus' name, it's being written by a man who's been thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. That could be a slight stopper in their joy before Paul even gets going. But we see in our reading this morning that that fact doesn't seem to trouble Paul too much, even as he writes in his chains. And we also see that that's not because Paul is just a kind of easygoing, glass-half-full kind of guy. It's clear in the passage that I read shortly earlier that Paul's Christ-centered priorities are what enable him, and therefore what enable the Philippians to rejoice. How Paul views trial 
and actually how he views all of life. It's a massive encouragement for the Philippians and an example for them to follow. And that's true for us too. And so our aim in looking at this passage together this morning is that it will help us to rejoice, even when it hurts, if we see the gospel advancing and the church progressing. Those are the two headings with which we'll look under this passage. Two things which make us rejoice. Rejoice, the gospel is advancing. And rejoice, the church is progressing. So first of all, rejoice, the gospel is advancing. And Paul lays out his stall right away. Having made his introductory comments, which we saw last week, he moves right into the main body of the letter with this big statement of his priorities. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You know when you know somebody so well that you can predict how they're going to react in different situations. And so you can head off that reaction with a preemptive comment. That's how verse 12 reads to me. Paul knows his friends at Philippi. And he knows that they might be worrying about him, finding out that he's in prison might cause them to be a bit anxious and sorrowful and so he heads that off by saying guys I know you might be feeling like that I know that my being in prison might be a bit of a discouragement for you but don't worry because my being in here in this ruined jail cell well that's meant that more people have heard the gospel and so I'm doing fine knowing that as well as being pretty reassuring for them then this verse also lays out for us something that we'll see a lot of in philippians paul's priorities are so gospel focused so christ-centered that he can rejoice in any situation if he knows that people are still hearing about jesus So before we even go any further, I think there's already a massive challenge for us, even in this first verse, isn't there? Because if you're like me, then you'll be tempted to wallow in self-pity when things don't tend to go our way. Well, wouldn't it be much more fruitful if all of us were able to say, in any circumstance, like Paul, what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, and in that I rejoice. I think... That'll be a a wonderful thing. I think we all know that'll be a wonderful thing to share in. But how do we get there? How do we share in Paul's attitude here? Well, Paul shows us two ways in which his being in prison has helped the gospel to spread further. First, it's given him his own personal unique opportunities. In verse 13, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So that's the first thing that Paul can rejoice in. Very practically, being thrown in prison has given him a whole new group of people that he can tell about Jesus. Back in January, home in in St Andrews, we lost a member of our church family, a quite young woman, really, after a long battle with cancer. And I think as I reflect on the last couple of years of seeing her struggle through her illness, One of the greatest encouragements in our church family life was seeing how that dear woman would join in on Zoom Bible studies and meetings, even from her chemo ward in the hospital. She'd log in on her iPad. And we'd hear her regularly saying how brilliant it was that in hospital she had opportunities 
to share the gospel with her doctors and nurses right up to the end. It was something that she and we through her took great joy in. And that's the kind of attitude that Paul has here. He doesn't see imprisonment as a roadblock. He doesn't see it even as an excuse for a bit of a break, a bit of enforced downtime to put his feet up and rethink his strategy. No, his first port of call when he gets thrown in prison is thinking, brilliant, this is a whole new group of people to whom I didn't have access before and to whom I can now share the gospel. He just keeps right on going in preaching the Lord Jesus to everyone who will hear him, wherever he is. And it's not only through Paul himself that people are hearing the gospel. It seems that being thrown in jail has actually meant that other people too have been preaching the gospel with more boldness. We see that in verse 14. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now that seems counterintuitive, I think. We might expect that Paul being thrown in prison would get people thinking, well, I better lay low or I'll end up in prison too. If even Paul is going to be thrown in jail for the sake of the gospel, then what hope do I have? I think I'll keep a low profile. Actually, according to Paul here, his own being thrown in jail has given other gospel preachers more boldness. We see in verses 15 to 17 that these bold preachers come in two forms, though. Those preaching from goodwill and those preaching from envy and rivalry. So some people look at Paul in prison and they think, well, we can't just sit back and let him do all the hard work anymore. We can't just hide behind his witness, his evangelistic zeal. Because he's in there, it's now time for us to step up. It's time for me to step up. They know that the defense and proclamation of the gospel that Paul is engaged in is so important that if Paul can't do it anymore, well, somebody has to. I think it's always a real joy when unlikely people step up to the plate in church life. I think of a few years ago in St Andrews again where we had a real shortage of presenters for our Sunday worship and uh, we didn't have many people who were coming forward to volunteer so a couple of student blokes who weren't from free church backgrounds who had no real background in music they said yeah I'll do that I I can be trained how to present Sam's I'm willing to serve in that way such an encouragement if no one else will do it I'll do it or I think of a man that I met on a, a kids camp once he had no particular interest in children And he had no experience in children's ministry or teaching Sunday school. But he arrived in his new church once and he discovered that there wasn't really a children's ministry happening. There weren't many volunteers who were able to run it. And so even though it wasn't his thing, even though it wasn't within his wheelhouse or his particular gifting, he thought, he knew that children's ministry was so important, so valuable, that he decided to take it on himself and he volunteered. That's how important it was to him that children in church were being taught the gospel. I say this because I think we could probably all do with a bit more of that kind of attitude. If nobody else will do it, I'll do it. I'll trust the Lord to use me in this way, even if it's out of my comfort zone. We could all do with more of that kind of attitude. And we could probably all do with that attitude, especially when it comes to sharing the gospel. Because it's easy with that to wait for the visiting preacher or minister or one of the elders to share the gospel with our friends and families. We probably all need more of that attitude of, why don't I give it a go myself? Why don't I trust the Lord to use me to do that? 
But I think all of that is a slightly more secondary line of application. Worthwhile saying, but secondary to the main thrust of what Paul's actually saying here, which is drawn out in verses 17 to 18. The former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The question that we're being faced with in verses 12 to 26 is a question of priorities. And we see here really clearly, once again, that Paul's top, top, top priority is as many people hearing about Jesus as is possible. And so here, when he finds out that since he's been thrown in prison, people have been preaching the gospel with the intention of causing him harm, probably by saying, right, you've heard the gospel from Paul. Actually, Paul's not that great, really. I mean, they threw him in prison. That's the kind of guy Paul is. You've heard it from him. Now, listen to me instead. I'm much better than he is. I've, I've got much more to offer you. Well, when he hears of this, what's Paul's reaction? It's joy. It's thanksgiving. It's praise that God is allowing more people to hear about Jesus. Even if hearing about Jesus means they also have to hear a lot of nasty and untrue things about Paul himself, Paul is full of joy. He doesn't care about his own reputation one bit. All he cares about is that more and more people hear about Jesus. It's so easy for us, isn't it, to slide into envy and rivalry in the Christian life, even in the life of ministry, I confess. It's easy for us to look at other people who always seem to get asked to help out on holiday Bible camps or give talks at the youth fellowship and think, oh, I never get a chance to do that. What's wrong with me? Or it's easy, I think, to hear of churches down the road from us who've had 20 new members come forward and to think, well, what do they have that we don't have? And even within Christian ministry, it's depressingly, it's embarrassingly easy to look around at other preachers, gifted, godly preachers, and to just quietly resent their gifts. And to just slightly hope that we might hear them give a sermon that's a slightly off-game sermon, where they maybe stumble over their words and don't do quite as good a job. Like I say, it's depressing, it's embarrassing how easy it is for envy and rivalry to slide into the Christian life. And even into the life of ministry. And I think all that makes Paul's response all the more humbling for us. Because here we see Paul, he's so consumed with a desire for people to hear the gospel that he is able to actively rejoice, not just in the successes of others, but in the successes of other people who aren't his fans, people who are actively seeking to afflict and torment him in his imprisonment. He rejoices in their ministry. That's how much he loves Jesus, how much he longs for people to know him. It's in this that we see one of the secrets to ongoing joy in the Christian life, which we'll see throughout the book of Philippians 2. Just imagine the difference it would make if we were more like Paul here. When we hone in on our own context, we find that discouragements tend to stick around a lot more easily than positive. We tend to find that we can ruminate endlessly on our own discontentment about the size of our Sunday school or the lack of evangelistic enthusiasm in our congregation or in our community. We can do that. Or we can just lift our eyes up slightly and look around us at the wider Christian community, the wider Christian world. 
How much better would it be to rejoice any time we hear the gospel advancing? Whether it's advancing down the road in a church very similar to ours, or advancing down the road in a church which we wouldn't necessarily go to ourselves but is still faithful, or advancing through the ministry of people who we don't personally like or get on with, or advancing in a different part of the world altogether, a part of the world which seems to be enjoying the kinds of exciting and dynamic works of revival that we would long to see on our own doorstep. How much better would it be if we rejoice in all of those things, we praise God for all of those things? I would guess that even when we feel a wee bit stayed in our own context, we have much cause for joy when we allow ourselves to rejoice every time we hear of the gospel advancing. And similarly, I think we have a lot of cause for joy too if we look at where the church is progressing. And that's our second heading. We rejoice that the gospel is advancing and we rejoice that the church is progressing. In the first half of this passage, Paul rejoices in knowing that Christ is being proclaimed. Here he rejoices in knowing that Christ is being honoured and glorified. When we look at the second half of verse 18 and down to the end of the chapter. What's really striking is that for Paul, he's happy for Christ to be glorified and honoured, either through his life or even through his own death. It's the famous verse at the heart of this passage. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's one of the most famous verses in Philippians. I wager it's one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. And in the run-up to it, Paul has just been saying that he can rejoice because he's certain of his deliverance. Not deliverance from prison, though, that we might expect, but true deliverance, God's ultimate salvation. Paul knows full well that from a human point of view, he may well be reaching the end. Death might await him during his imprisonment and trial. But his Christ-centered priorities allow him to face even that with courage and with joy. To live as Christ, even to die, is gain. I've reflected in the past that if I were writing the letter to the Philippians, and let's all be thankful that I wasn't writing the letter to the Philippians, but I probably would have written verse 21 of this chapter, something like this. For to me, to live is really, really great, and that's what I really hope happens that I live. But to die, it's not ideal, but it's all right, because I'll get to go and be with Jesus, even though it's not quite as good as living. That's what I would probably write, something like that. But Paul's attitude is very different. Paul is genuinely conflicted, genuinely hard-pressed between those two options of living and dying. And actually, it's the thought of dying and going to be with Jesus that edges it for him. If Paul got his own way, he knows that personally speaking, it would be far better to go and be with the Lord whom he loves. Yet any desire that he does have to live, amazingly, it doesn't come from self-preservation. It doesn't come from the will to just keep on keeping on. It comes from that same desire to honour and to glorify Christ Jesus. Specifically through continuing to serve Jesus' church at Philippi. We read from verses 24 to 26. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. 
We sometimes hear inspirational stories of people who've been facing death or stranded in the desert or lost at sea and all hope is sliding away. And the thing that keeps them going, the thing that gives them that will to just keep on is the thought of being reunited with their wives, their husbands, their loved ones, their children. It's the thought of of seeing them again that gives them the, the will to carry on even when hope seems lost. Well, here for Paul, sitting in his prison cell and facing up to the real prospect of death, he's thinking of the Philippians, his dear friends. And he's thinking, even though I'd love to die, I'd love to go and be with the Lord Jesus. I hope I pull through this because I want to go and see my friends at Philippi again. And not for his own sake, not so he can have a nice trip or a fun reunion, but for their sake, on their account. Paul's death would honour Christ because everyone knows that's why he's in prison. He's in prison for preaching the gospel, for proclaiming Christ, and dying for his Lord would be another mark of identification with Jesus, something which would bring him glory and fill the church with joy. But his life would honour Christ too, maybe even more so, because he would get back to a life of fruitful labour, serving the Philippians and helping them to grow in their faith. Remember last week, the day of Christ is very present in Paul's mind as he writes this letter. And he's thinking, if it's good for me to go and, and see my Lord through death, how much better that on the last day when Christ returns, I go to him with the Philippians full of joy and thanksgiving for how they've grown, how I've been able to help them to be more like Jesus, so that together we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servants. Remember that one of his big aims is to encourage them, to encourage the Philippian church. So just imagine how encouraging this must have been for them. To hear that Paul's deepest desire in life, in what's left of his own life, is to glorify Jesus in his ministry among them. Not just to set off on another successful missionary journey to plant loads more churches around the place, but to glorify Jesus in his ministry to them. The thing that's getting him out of bed in the morning is a desire to see them grow and progress in their faith. Is to see them grow in their own joy in Christ. I think that's super encouraging on its own having having that vote of confidence from your biggest spiritual hero hearing him saying my deepest desire is to see you grow and to rejoice more that's really encouraging in and of itself but more than that in paul the philippians also have this brilliant model of what it looks like to know joy even through trials Again, remember that they're going to be facing trials and tribulations just like Paul's before too long. We'll see next week that some of the signs of of danger, of warning, of trial have already come to the, the door of Christ Church Philippi. And so these verses will help them to rejoice, will help them to keep going and to, to rejoice in Jesus when they see that the gospel is advancing and the church is progressing. When the heat turns up on them, which it will, the Philippian church can remember Paul. They can look to Paul, their hero, and say, well, wasn't Paul full of joy and thanksgiving, even in his chains? 
How can we be like that too? That means that the Philippian church can rejoice in their own sharing of the gospel, even if it costs them their livelihoods, even if it costs them their lives. And they can rejoice too in the gospel's work to grow fruit, to, to grow and to bear fruit among them. How Christ is glorified as his people serve him and make him known even at great cost. So all of this is helping them to have, again, the right priorities. Even through times of trial and hardship. And in that regard, it's really helpful for us too. I think there's a couple of ways that we could read these verses. We could look at Paul, compare ourselves to him, and be really conscious of how far short we fall. That's how I have gone wrong in the past with this specific passage and passages like it. To look at it and to think, I'm nothing like Paul. I've got nothing to offer. How could I be more like him? As I mentioned, if I were writing chapter 1, verse 21, it would read pretty differently. And I used to use this passage to really beat myself around the head for not being as passionate and committed as Paul. Very easy to feel like that. I remember a story from Glenn Scrivener, the Australian evangelist. When he was a very young Christian, I think he was about 14, he used to be really racked with self-doubt and with guilt and to feel like he just needed to show and to prove to God that he was really, really committed. And he would go out uh, at night when it was dark. He would go out with his Bible open and he would get face down and he'd bury his face in the soil in his garden, just praying that God would use him because that's how seriously he was taking it. Actually, things like that, they sound quite impressive, but they're not really helpful in the ongoing Christian life. It's not really helpful to feel like we have to constantly prove ourselves to God with these big, ostentatious displays of commitment. And I think it can be easy to read a passage like this and to feel like that's what's being asked of us. That what's being required of us is some really impressive display of how deeply committed, how deeply spiritual we are. I've heard lots of talks along those lines. If you really love Jesus, you'll come to the front now and you'll lay something down in front of me to show how committed you are to following him, to show that for you to live as Christ and to die really is gain. I've heard lots of that. And friends, it's not wrong for us to be challenged and convicted by scripture. Of course not. And it would not be a bad thing at all if we all left here this afternoon wanting to be more like Paul. That would be great. But I also wonder if we might be better to look at Paul and, first of all, to allow ourselves to be encouraged. That's the second way we could read a passage like this. Here is someone already in prison and facing the real prospect of death, and yet so full of joy because that's how much he loved Jesus. So full of desire to see brothers and sisters grow that he would make that his life's ambition because that's how much. He loved Jesus. That's actually really encouraging to hear. It actually draws our hearts, not just to Paul and so to our own feelings of inadequacy, but supremely towards the Lord whom Paul loved and to his all-sufficiency. The Christian life, we know, it's not always easy. And though, praise God, at the minute in this country, we're not yet facing jail or death for knowing Jesus, there are times when we're more aware of the real cost of discipleship, the real cost of knowing Jesus and loving him and making him known. 
And it might well be that the day will come when it's more dangerous to be public with our faith, even here in Scotland. But in every scenario, in Paul, we have this wonderful example of our just knowing Jesus, just loving Jesus, just loving his people is enough to allow us to keep going, even through trial, with deep joy. So it's right, of course, that we allow this passage to reshape our priorities. I find it much easier to do that, though, when we start with that love for the Lord Jesus, rather than with comparisons with Paul. Remember his prayer from last week, for an an abounding love for the Lord Jesus. Here's one of the offshoots of that love, a real and tangible and lasting joy. And another one of the offshoots of that love is a growing love and concern for Christ's people. Next week, we'll think more about what it means to strive side by side for the sake of the gospel, to be as one mind with our church family. But already, the letter to the Philippians is asking us the question, how does all of this transform our view of what life is for and of what church is? How much is my love for the Lord Jesus, displaying itself in love for his people. Wouldn't it be wonderful again if the answer to that question was so much that I take real joy in laying down my life in serving and encouraging my church family, no matter how costly that is, no matter how many discouragements or knockbacks I receive, no matter how unnoticed that work goes. We'll think more about that next week, as I say. Partnership, fellowship, unity, those big Philippian words, the themes that run all throughout this letter. But as we close off this afternoon, we see already that that's another, maybe unlikely secret to lasting joy in the Christian life. If we look above our own circumstances and to what God is doing in the lives of other believers, Well then, once again, we're able to rejoice when we see that the church is progressing. Progressing as it grows in knowledge of and love for the Lord Jesus and rejoicing in him. We're going to rejoice together now in song as we sing Psalm 63 verses 1 to 8. Find that on page 80, sing Psalms. We'll sing it to the tune of Wareham. O God, you are my God alone. I seek your face with eagerness. My soul and body thirst for you in this dry, weary wilderness.
final word of prayer. And may the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. Amen.